0: All right, James chapter 1, James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. We're going to continue right into verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Now, we're going to just spend a little bit of time just in verse one. There's a lot of valuable information here for us in this one verse. Let me read it to you again. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. We're going to spend a chunk of time pulling some things out of here, but this isn't just information. You're hopefully going to be Encouraged and challenged at the same time with what God wants us to see from here. James calls himself what? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our English translations don't really help us that much with what's really being said here. Because most of our English translations say servant, but it actually means slave. It's a slave, a bond slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, okay, well, we're all servants of God. We're all slaves of God. Yes, but there's something here that many of you already know, but many of you others might not know. Actually, what's going on here is knowing who the writer is who says that he's a slave of Jesus will really bring to light what's being said. This James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus and James have the same mother, Mary. Jesus' father, hopefully you understand, is God, but James' father is Joseph. And so what I want to do is I want to show you that James, who's related to Jesus, because they share a mother, they're half-brothers, calls himself a slave of his brother. Now, we're going to deal with that in a little bit later on, but let's just let the scripture help us understand who this James is. Go to Galatians chapter 1 Galatians chapter 1, look at verses 18 and 19. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So here James is also described now as an apostle. You gotta keep in mind, there were more than just the 12 apostles. There were many apostles. Barnabas was considered an apostle according to the scriptures. Here we see James is considered an apostle, but he's also the Lord's who? The Lord's brother. Go Go to Acts chapter 12. Look at verses 12 through 17. Acts chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Now, we're in the middle of a story. Peter is being released from prison. God miraculously had the chains fall off and the, the doors fly open. And when he realized this, Acts 12, 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the, gate, uh, of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went on to another place. Now James, as you're going to see, has become not only a believer in Jesus, he's become one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. That's why Paul said he went up to Jerusalem after he'd been taught by Jesus face to face. He went up to Jerusalem and he met with the apostles and also another one of them, James, the Lord's brother. And here, Peter says, go get this word to James that I've been set free from prison and all to the other brothers. Now, some people would say, wait a minute. How do we know that this isn't James, the brother of John? Remember James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, the two fishermen? How come we know that this isn't the same James that wrote, that wrote the book of James? How do we know it's not James, John's brother? Well, go back with me to chapter 12 of Acts and look at verses 1 and 2. It says, About that time Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And then it goes on. When he saw this pleased the, 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 the Jews, he decided to have Peter put to death, too, and put Peter in that same prison. So at this point in Acts chapter 12, when Peter tells them, go tell James, the brother of Jesus, what had already happened to James, the brother of John? He's already been been killed. So the James that Peter's referring to here and the one Paul was referring to when they said, go tell James, or I went and met with James, the Lord's brother, is James, the half brother of Jesus. All right. Now go back with me to Mark chapter six, because actually you're going to see in Mark chapter six, verses one through six, James is listed, along with somebody else that wrote a book in our Bible, one of the books of our Bible. In Mark chapter 6, look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary?" and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. So here we see in Jesus' teaching in his hometown, and they say, Wait a minute, where did this guy get this insight? Where did he get this wisdom? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't Isn't mother here? Aren't his brother James? And look at the name, Joseph and who? Judas. That's actually Jude. You're going to see in just a little bit, the guy that wrote the book of Jude is also a half-brother of Jesus. Again, Jesus and they shared the same mother, but they have different fathers. And so at this point, this James, the half-brother of Jesus, has become a leader In the church in Jerusalem, I actually can show you this some more. Go to Galatians chapter 2, because the fact that he becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem is going to be kind of important in just a little bit. But go to Galatians chapter 2 and look at verses 9 and 10. We saw earlier that Paul said he he didn't consult with anyone. He went up to Jerusalem and met with the apostles and James, the brother of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 2, look at verses 9 and 10. Paul goes on and says, And when James and Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars or leaders in the church, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul said that James and Peter and John are pillars or leaders in the church there in Jerusalem. So this James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, who is now one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, had he always been a believer? No. Go back with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 5. says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths or tabernacles was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see your works that you're doing. For no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even not even his brothers believed in him. Did you catch that? Not even his own brothers believed in him. They were mocking him. They said, oh, you're going to be one of these big shots. You're going to be a teacher. You're going to be doing these miracles we see you do. Well, go do them in public. Go do them down in Judea. By the way, why do you think they wanted him to go to Judea? what was waiting for Jesus in Judea? They were trying to kill him. And they were like, hey, why don't you go on down there? They don't like him. And they don't believe in him. Go to Mark chapter 3. There's something in the story of Jesus having his mothers and brothers coming to him that a lot of people don't realize. In Mark chapter 3, look at verses 20 and 21. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So, you're about to jump down with me now to verses 31 through 35. And his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers, mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is brother and sister, he is my mother, brother and sister and mother. Listen closely. When that group of people were all gathered around Jesus so much so that his family couldn't even get to him, and they sent word into the house saying, We'd like to see him, and people say, Hey, your family's outside, they want to see you, your mother and your brothers are here. According to Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, why had Mary and the brothers come to get him? They thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. They didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy. Well, how in the world does he become a leader in the church? Go to Acts chapter 15. Listen to what's happened to this man, James, who didn't believe in Jesus. Thought he was out of his mind. Go to Acts chapter 15. Amazing transformation has occurred. In Acts chapter 15, we've already seen in Galatians that he's become a leader, a pillar in the church, someone that Paul would go see, someone that Peter would tell us to go tell them to go tell James. In Acts chapter 15, look at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump down to verses 6 and following. In Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers down in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So some people from the church in Jerusalem went down to Antioch and told the Gentiles, unless you're circumcised, you're not really saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas had a real issue with this, and so they had some debate with them, and they decided, with the church's uh, agreement, to go up to Jerusalem to go meet with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem about this issue. Now, verse 6 Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our Father nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replies, Brothers, listen to me. of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogue. So as the elders and the apostles get together in Jerusalem to debate this issue and find out, what does the law say? What does the word of God say? What's the spirit of God showing us in this issue? Peter gets up and speak and many people get up and share, but James is the one who gets up and he said, you know what, guys? After listening to all this, the Spirit of God's showing me that this actually matches up with what the Word says. The Spirit of God, through James, quotes Scripture and talks about how it fits to what's really going on. And the whole assembly was like, you know what? He's got wisdom. And they listened to him. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I want to chase something real quick. Over the years in ministry... As I've pastored churches and as I deal with churches now and help them follow God's design for elder leadership, I don't think the Bible teaches that the whole church should be getting in together and debating everything and business meeting. I think a lot of problems happen because of that. You'll notice in this situation, they had everybody together. Some of the party of the Pharisees said, we think they need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And the elders and the apostles stopped having the big church wide meeting and they went off by themselves to pray and to wrestle over this issue. And as they were doing so, they looked at what God was doing. They looked at what the scripture, they prayed about it. They even sent a letter saying it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything more than and so on. But one of the things that I've come to realize is even if you have elders and spiritual men who are leading the church, I'm always looking for the ones who are quiet, who listen to all the stuff go on. And you'll have lots of people with their opinions and I think this and I think that and blah, blah, blah. But usually when I was a pastor of a church, I would wait until it was all done and I would look at certain individuals who were kind of like James. I actually met with uh, one of those kind of guys who's an elder of a church up in the Chesapeake area of Virginia today. But I met with him down in Pompano Beach. And as we were talking, I told him, you're one of those guys that I always looked for in a church. When I was pastor here, his name was Jerry. And the meeting would be having our discussion, when it was all said and done, I'd turn and I'd say, Jerry, what do you think? And Jerry hadn't said a word the whole meeting. But at that point, Jerry would then speak very quietly, very clearly, very lovingly. And he would take together everything that had been said, and you could hear the spirit of God speak through him. And you could everybody in the room go, you know what, that's wisdom. James had become one of those guys. Isn't that amazing? Go to Acts chapter 21. Look at verses 17 through 19. Now when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to who? To James and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Remember, this is when we looked at the end of our Roman study, how Paul went to Jerusalem, he got, uh, we got arrested and all, but he went before he got arrested in Jerusalem, he went and met with the leadership of the church, and he met with James. Go to Galatians chapter 2 again. There's a couple of verses there that I didn't read. Go to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul makes a very interesting statement in how he describes the church in Jerusalem, In Galatians 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from where? From James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. When Paul says, when certain men came from James, what's he referring to? They came from where? From the Jerusalem church. So James is not only a considered a pillar or one of the leaders to the point that Peter would say after he's released from prison, go tell James and the brothers. Not only has James become one of these men that when they're having the Jerusalem council and wrestling over these issues, James is the one that speaks with spirit and wisdom and from the scriptures. James actually becomes referred to almost synonymously with the church in Jerusalem. But he didn't believe in Jesus. He thought he was out of his mind. When did he get saved? How did he get this kind of wisdom? It has to be after the resurrection. We don't know. There's not an account exactly of when it happened. But I can tell you this much. The Bible tells us, though, that when Jesus was risen from the dead and the believers were all gathered together in that upper room waiting James was there. He changed his mind. Go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Look at verses 12 through 14. Acts chapter 1 starting in verse 12. They return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas. By the way, this James is the one that's yet to be killed. And then Matthew, and there's James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and who? and his brothers. Now it's confusing to some people because there's so many different people named James and by the way that happens a lot. I've got the name James as well and my wife has a dad with the name James and her sister Julie married a guy named James and so there's a few Jameses around us just even in my family but in this situation at this point James is not one of the pillars in the church. He's not one of the leaders in the church but it's going to happen soon. But he's there in the upper room. Oh by the way Um, we started in the middle of chapter 1. It says, they returned to Jerusalem. What had just happened before verse 12? Jesus' ascension. We see that Luke had been writing here in chapter 1 of Acts about how Jesus rose from the dead and how he appeared to his disciples for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And he says, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promised Holy Spirit by my father had promised And and so on. And so they who went back to the upper room and waited for the coming Holy Spirit. Were believers. They were believers who had been meeting with Jesus, being taught by Jesus face to face for 40 days. They watched him ascend bodily. They heard the angels and saw the angels say he's coming back in the same manner. And in that room weren't just the 11 plus the one that replaced him soon. We'll replace Judas soon, but there was also Mary and the brothers. Now, let's let this part sink in. Now, James now believes that his half brother is Lord and that he is his slave. I don't know how many of you have brothers. I got three. I'm one of five kids. I have an older sister, and there's four of us boys. Can you imagine ever saying one of your brothers is your Lord? Unless you owe him a lot of money. And I'm not talking that. I'm just saying, can you even imagine what it would take to say, my brother's my Lord? Something supernatural has happened to the point that he doesn't see Jesus anymore as his half brother. You notice he doesn't even say, I'm half brother of Jesus. Did you notice that? Go to the book of Jude. Remember how we saw back in Mark chapter 6, Jude was also one of the brothers? Look at Jude chapter 1, verse 1. You can go to chapter 2 if you want to, Charlie. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 or verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Isn't that interesting? He's not afraid to say that he's James's brother. But he doesn't even consider himself a brother of Jesus. He considers himself a slave of Jesus. Well, now, we could get stuck on the the fact that these brothers now were willing to call their own half brother Lord and that they were his slave. But I want to take it a little further. What about you? Go back to Romans chapter 1. You say, wait a minute, I thought we just finished Romans. We did, but there's a lot there. Go to Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant, but some of your Bibles have little notes there. What do your notes say on that word servant? Slave. Bondservant, servant, which means slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses, well, just verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant, there's that word again, slave and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we can spend all our time looking at the fact that something supernatural has happened to the point that James and Judas, who are or, or Jude, as we know him, are, are, have now changed their mind, and also the other brothers, to the point that they don't think he's out of his mind anymore. They do believe in him. They're willing to risk their lives and to be a part of this group of believers. And not only that, they become leaders in the church, and they become people that are willing to say, he, He's not my, just, I'm not going to say, Well, I'm a half brother of Jesus. No, no, no. He is God and he's my Lord, and I'm his slave. We could get caught up into all that and miss out on the fact that the question is, are you willing to call him the same? I know of a lot of people that claim to be Christians who say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to call the shots in my life. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Jesus said, no one can claim to be my disciple unless he denies himself, takes up his cross daily and follows me. In other words, true following of Jesus is not just saying, Jesus, thank you for making it so I can go to heaven. True following of Jesus is you are Lord and my life is yours. You get to call the shots in my life. You get to determine who I marry and whether I marry You get to determine where I go and what I do. You're the one that determines my gifting and how I'm going to use those gifts. You determine how it happens in my life. My life is now going to be a life of saying I want to get to know you more and I want to follow you and I want to walk in obedience to you because I have been bought with a price. You have shed your blood for me and my life is now yours. Folks, don't skip over James chapter 1 verse 1 where he says I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have pulled out the credentials of, I'm the Lord's half brother. We don't even see him writing about all the stories of their childhood and how he counseled Jesus. No, he sees himself now as his slave. Whatever you say. And I'm going to challenge you. Each of us wrestle with that in some way or another on a daily basis. Because every morning our flesh wants to get up and be in charge. And we have to learn to daily renew our minds and say, Lord, I'm not in charge. You're in charge. Not my will, but yours be done. But I think it would help us to remember that James and Paul and Peter and Jude all called themselves servants or bondservants or slaves of Jesus Christ. They're pretty important people in the church. But they didn't see themselves as anything but a slave. That's why in Acts chapter 20, when Paul knows that he's to go to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, he says, I don't know the specifics of what's going to happen to me. I know the Holy Spirit's compelling me to go to Jerusalem. I don't know the specifics of what's going to happen. I only know that the Holy Spirit has warned me that hardship and imprisonment await me in whatever city I go into. And he said, that's okay. I'm even willing to die if that's God's plan for my life. Because he must increase, I must decrease. Isn't that what John the Baptist said? I'm going to ask you again. Is he Lord? It's interesting, a wonderful preacher you've heard me quote many times, Vance Habner, used to do revival services, and he used to have an altar call for the people that wanted to be saved. And he had an altar call for the people that needed to be baptized. And he had an altar call for those who wanted to rededicate their lives. And he was an altar call for those who want to join the church. And he would have all these different altar calls. And he said, I stopped doing it. He said, I just gave one. At the end of my ministry, I only gave one. And it was a call to those who are going to surrender to Jesus as Lord. Because if you're surrendering to Jesus as Lord and he says you must be saved, you're going to come forward for that. And if you're going to listen to him and he says you need to be baptized, if he's your Lord, you're going to do what he says and you're going to come forward for that. If he's telling you to join the church, you're going to come to do that. If you're ready to get serious about him and stop living for flesh and that's what he's wanting you to do, you're going to do that. But whatever his lordship means, come. He said, I stopped trying to tell everybody what decision they ought to make. And I let Jesus be Lord. What's he talking to you about? Did you ever notice in the Bible where God reveals himself to Samuel? Of course, Samuel doesn't understand the voice of God at this point, and he thinks Eli's calling him. And at this point, now after three times, Eli realizes he's hearing from God, what does he go back and tell him to say? Speak who? Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. Folks, we need to be reminded in the renewing of our minds that Jesus is Lord. He gets to determine what you watch and you don't watch. By the way, that's not your job to tell everybody else he told me this. That means you have to watch, not watch this too. No, no, you're not their Lord. He gets to be Lord. But if he's doing something in your life, you need to be listening and doing what he says. I'm going to ask you. Is he your your Lord? Are you his slave? Does he get to call the shots in your life? Or do you want to be in control? Now back to James chapter 1, there's actually more still in this verse that we haven't even touched. It says that he is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So who is he writing to? Who are the 12 tribes of the dispersion? Well, hopefully you understand who the 12 tribes are. Who are the 12 tribes? The Jews. He's writing to the Jews. Uh, Go to Revelation chapter 21. Look at verses 9 through 14. Revelation 21, starting in verse 9, as he's describing the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. In verse, verse 9, it says this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God in its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at its gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of who? Of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Go over to chapter 7 of Revelation. Revelation 7, look at verses 4 through 8. And I heard the number of the sealed, the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of who? Of Israel, sons of Israel. 12,000 from Judah and 12,000 and so on. And there's 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So when... James is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. We at least know the 12 tribes are talking about the nation of Israel. He's he's writing to the Jews, but he's writing to the Jews of the dispersion. What's the dispersion? Well, actually, the dispersion has been going on for a long time because of God's... Word and his truthfulness of his word. He told the nation of Israel way back when he made them and brought them into their promised land. If you obey me, you'll be here and you'll prosper. But if you disobey me, I will scatter you. I'll disperse you. Go to John chapter 7. Something very interesting is said by Jesus and then in response by the Jews. In John chapter 7, look at verses 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So they said, what what part of the world is he going to go to that we can't find him? Is he going to the dispersion? See, because the Jews understood that even though they were back in their land, there were many Jews that because of disobedience had been scattered among the nations and hadn't come back. Even when God brought them out out of their captivity in Babylon back to the land, many of them just stayed. And so they were called the dispersion, the Jews who weren't in the land of Israel anymore. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Look at verses 10 through 13. Prophecy of the future. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people's Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the who? The dispersed of Jacob or Judah. And from the four corners of the earth, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. He's going to regather the dispersed ones. We're not going to have you turn there, but you can go look at it later on. Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 talks about that as well. The daughters of my dispersed ones, those who are going to come to faith during the tribulation period and into the millennial kingdom. And so first off, the dispersion is talking about the Jews who have been scattered because of their disobedience over time. And there are Jews all over the world. If you go back to Acts chapter 2 where Peter is preaching and, and the Holy Spirit comes upon all the disciples there in the upper room and they start preaching. And the Holy Spirit's preaching through them in the point that they're speaking in other known languages. And it says, and they were staying in Jerusalem, Jews, devout Jews from every nation under heaven. Now we've got to stop for a second. We remember how Jesus said, "You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea and Samaria and the innermost parts of the earth, and pretty soon the gospel is going to start in Jerusalem and it's going to make its way to the whole earth. But do you hear what just happened in chapter two? Right before Peter preached? God had devout Jews from every nation under heaven already there. in Jerusalem. to hear the preaching of Peter. Did you catch that? I thought it was going to start with the disciples and eventually make it to the whole world. Oh, that's just a part of what God was doing. He was going to have them start there and go out. But he's not just resting on them. He also had already brought devout Jews, believing Jews from every nation, back into Jerusalem to hear it. And don't you think they were going to take it back to their people as well? Oh, he's not waiting on us. He's got a plan that's bigger than we realize. But Acts chapter 8 tells us more, though, that being dispersed, wasn't done just prior to Jesus coming onto the earth. Go to Acts chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. In Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Saul, before he got saved, was approving of Stephen's being killed. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all what? What's another word we could use? dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Of course, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. They dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the Jews had been scattered because of the disobedience. Some had come back to the land, but not all the Jews were back in the land. And the Bible talks about the fact that there's going to be a gathering at the very end where God, at the end of the tribulation period, is going to gather all the Jews on the whole planet. I was actually down in Fort Lauderdale area this morning. And there are a few Jews down there. Ran into a bunch of them. But one day, all the Jews are no longer going to be dispersed. They're all going to be back in Jerusalem. But James is writing to not just the Jews who have been dispersed because of their disobedience, He's also writing to the Jews who have been dispersed because of their persecution in believing in Jesus. It's a mixed group. Who's the dispersion? Well, that's kind of a big answer. But he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. He's writing to the Jews who have been scattered because of disobedience and because of their faith. And you're going to see as James writes this letter, he's going to be writing to Christians. But he's also going to have things in there that aren't for Christians, that are for unbelievers. When he, He's going to say, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Well, why would he say that if he's already writing to believers? Uh, you're going to see he's writing to an audience of Jews that are Christians who are being scattered, and also they've been scattered because of their disobedience, and others have been scattered because of their faith. Some are Jews who have been obedient, some of Jews that have been disobedient. By the way, do you know that Peter wrote to the same group of people? Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 1. And you're going to see as we take a look at the next verses in James, because I do promise we'll cover more than just one verse in James tonight. But when we look at this, uh, the other verses in James, you're going to see we're going to have to take a look at Peter's writings a lot, because he writes to the same people. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of who? The dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, is Peter writing to believing Jews who have been dispersed or unbelieving Jews? No. Look closely. The elect. He's writing to believers. James is writing to mostly believers, but also to those who have been dispersed because they're Jews and they're in disobedience. Peter's writing to the Jews who have been scattered because of their belief. You're going to see that's important for us down the road. So let's go to verses 2 through 4 again of James chapter 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is writing to them to encourage them that even though they're suffering because of their faith in Jesus, God is using it to produce good fruit in many different ways. The suffering that's being referred to here is not suffering because of sin, but suffering that's tied to their faith. Like I said, James is predominantly writing to believing Jews who have been scattered, but also in there will be some unbelieving Jews, which we'll see in our study. But go to 1 Peter chapter 4. I want to clarify that Not all suffering is because we're believers in Jesus. Some suffering we go through is tied to our own sinful and stupid choices. In 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verses 15 and 16. He says, "Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So, Is every suffering that we go through as Christians because we're believers in Jesus? No. Some of it's tied to wrong choices and disobedience in our life. And God's going to use those suffering, those trials, and the discipline. And we're going to look at the difference in all that in a little bit. But he's going to use it for his good, for, for his purposes of good in our lives. But first and foremost, don't just assume that the suffering you're going through is because you're a follower of Jesus. Make sure that it's not because you've been disobedient. Now... Once you've done the sin checklist, kind of like Job did. I mean, his friends came and they were quiet for a while, but eventually eventually they said, "Okay, the only reason this is happening is because you had to done something. God's getting you. And he says, look, I've done the check. I've done the checklist. I can look you in the eye. I can look God in the eye and say, this is not because of my sin. And he was right. It said nothing to do with his sin. God had a different purpose in mind. So there's nothing wrong with doing a checklist. But once you've done the checklist and the Holy Spirit's not convicting you of anything and not wanting you to confess anything, then you can understand that what you're going through is tied to purposes of God. And that's why James says to them, count it all what? Joy when you face trials of various kinds, because these trials, because of your faith, are going to produce good fruit. So what I want to do in the time we have left, and I think we can do it, is deal with what, what are some of God's purposes in having believers go through trials or tests. Number one is to confirm our faith. We're going to get to reliance in just a little bit, Michael. But let's just lay the ground foundation here. First and foremost, he uses it to confirm your faith, confirm your salvation. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 9. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, You believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He said, praise God for this awesome salvation that we've been given, that's kept in heaven for us. We're not holding on to it. God's holding on to it for us. And it's an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, fade. It's an awesome thing. But even though we've got this awesome eternity already promised, an inheritance that is ours, if necessary, for God's purposes, he may have you go through trials. And These trials have come to prove your faith genuine. Rick and I have been talking tonight about some things that he's going through health-wise. And I've already been down that road myself with me going through cancer back in 2017. And your faith gets stronger in these times, doesn't it? Folks, I can't explain it to you unless you've been there yourself. There is a confirming of the reality of your faith when you're truly saved and you go through a trial. Because when I went through cancer, I can look you in the eye and say, I always believed. And I always knew I was saved, but now I know I'm saved. Does that make sense? Because when that push came to shove and the doctor said, you have so many years to live. Or less than so many years to live. And we hope this treatment works. And as some people know, the treatment you go through for cancer could kill you itself. And you're taking poison. I knew I saved. But now I know I'm saved. Because when push came to shove, I believed it even more. And it confirmed in my heart that I was his Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter 4 verses 12 through 14. It says, By Salvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you. Who are in Christ? And for some reason, I think I wrote the wrong scripture down. Let's try Second Peter chapter. There is no Second Peter chapter four. Where was I getting that from? I apologize. I don't know why I wrote down First Peter four twelve, but no, I wrote. I read that, but it didn't. It wasn't what I was looking for. It didn't. First Peter 4, 12 Oh, I was reading chapter five twelve. That's why I was like, man, why does my, I did write the right thing? Thank you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the. Smitty, get up here and take over because you can finish it better than me. (laughs) Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When the believers were beaten for believing in Jesus, they went out of there rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. By the way, you know the Bible says that when trouble comes, it'll show whether or not you're really saved. In the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, we're not going to look at verses 20 and 21. You know that the seed fell on the rocky soil and it sprung up. sure looked like salvation. They might even have prayed a prayer, might even have been baptized, might even have joined a church. But when mama died... Or they lost the job. Or the girl that they were looking to marry went with somebody else. Or divorced them. They walked away. When trouble came, because there was no real salvation, because they had no root, they went away. The Bible actually says that trials will show who's really saved and who's not. Romans 5, we're not going to turn there because of time, but Romans 5 talks about how we've been given this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we don't only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God or heaven. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that God's going to use them for his glory and he's poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Folks, if you're truly saved, when the doctor says, I have bad news, your attitude will be, The Lord's got it. He's the one. That's why Paul in Philippians 1 sat in prison and he says, I know this will work out for my deliverance, whether through life or death. I don't know right now at this point if I'm going to live or die. But either way is good because if I die, I go be with Christ. If I live, that means more fruitful labor. But I'm torn between the two. What shall I choose? And then through that processing, the Holy Spirit confirmed in his heart he's going to stay in the body to help them in their walk with the Lord. Folks, when you get the bad news... If you're truly saved, your attitude will be, you know what? If I die, I die. That's all right. Because I know I'm going to heaven. I deal with so many people. And I say people, and I'm going to say church members because I don't know where everybody is. But I deal with so many people as they get older and they get closer to that time of their death. And I'll say, you're a day closer to heaven. And they'll say, I hope I go. Oh, folks. The Bible says the closer we get, the more we should be sure. Trials confirm your faith. Get that settled. The Bible also tells us that trials produce steadfastness or strong patience. Trials actually make us more patient. Now you say, You always see people say, well, uh, don't ask God for patience. Well, let me say something to you. When you hear people say, don't ask God for patience, what they're really saying to you is, don't ask God for an evidence of the spirit of God within you. Isn't the Bible say that one of the evidences of the fruit or the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. What's the next one? Patience. In other words, I don't want any evidence of Jesus in my life. That's a horrible thing to say. Oh, and by the way, if he who began the good work in you is going to finish it, and he who began the good work desires to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ, if Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered, if Jesus had to become complete in obedience to the Father, we as well should have an attitude that says, if that's his purpose for me, I want it. Now, our flesh doesn't want it. I understand that. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. But later it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. I want to say to you, renew your mind. Let this truth sink into you where it's not a verse we can quote how we can count it all joy when you face trials. But then we can actually be people that when the trial comes and the trial will come because the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. That we can respond in such a way by the grace of God that our faith has been confirmed. Our faith is real. And we are able to withstand however long it is that he has us go through this time of shaping. So much so that the people around us can say, okay, let's be honest. This isn't a normal reaction. Could you help me understand why you are so peaceful in the midst of all this? Why haven't you gotten a lawyer by now? Why are you still putting up with this? And we can honestly, in time, and we'll look at this more down the road when we come back, we can honestly say, my father has a purpose and a plan. And I'm going to wait until it's accomplished. For years, as I used to visit as a pastor, people who were having surgeries, I used to say three things to them whenever I'd go visit. If I was going to go pray with you before your surgery, I'd tell you three things. The first thing I would tell you is this. As soon as you put on the hospital gown, the end is in sight. If you've ever worn a hospital gown, you'll know what I just said. The second thing I would say is this. When the doctor starts to perform the surgery, lay still. Of course, they're going to give you enough drugs, so you don't have to worry about that. And the third thing I would say is this. Don't get off the operating table until he's done. Oh, by the way, they were all jokes. But they all had a little bit of truth. Folks, we are his workmanship, correct? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. He's the one that's called us. He's the one that saved us. He's the one that's gifted us. He's the one that's using us for his purposes. Oh, by the way, before he can use us for his purposes, he's got to get us a little bit more ready for that use. Did he have a plan for Abraham? Sure did, a big one. But he had a little bit of work to do in Abraham's life before Abraham could do the work that God called him to. Before Abraham could be willing to just sacrifice his son, God had to get him to stop lying and saying, she's not my wife, she's my sister, to protect what was his. Was David, did God have a big plan for David's life? Yes, he was going to be the king of Israel that God was going to use to gain territory and so on. And even though he trusted God, he still had a little bit more work to do because he was going to be tempted to take things into his own hands and not wait on God's timing for when he was to become... But I was already anointed! Yeah, that was 15 years before you actually became king. And God had him go through trials as he had to run and hide. Hide in the rocks and the caves, even though he's the next anointed king of Israel. And then God gave him even the test of having... The king come into the cave that he was hiding in and he could have killed him. And a couple of times he showed that he could have done it. And his own men were saying, this is the work of God. This is the hand of God. This is what you're supposed to do. But he had to learn to lead and to have victory when God said and how God said. Oh, by the way, once he does become the king of Israel, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 and following, He becomes king of Israel, and the Philistines hear about it, and they all gather in the valley of Rephaim, and David does an awesome thing. He inquires of the Lord, shall I go and attack them? And God tells him, go straight in, I'll give you the victory. And they do. They wipe them all out, carry off all their junk. The very next verse, verse 22, it says this, And the Philistines gathered yet again in the valley of Rephaim, And David doesn't assume that how God did it last time is how God's going to do it this time. You can double check me. This time he inquires of the Lord. Same people, same valley, same situation. But he doesn't assume that God's going to do it the same way because he just had victory. He inquired of the Lord and God says, this time, don't go straight in, go around behind them. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the trees, that means I've gone ahead of you to give you the victory. David had learned to wait upon when and how God said to lead. We'll come back to this next week. We're going to continue on in God's purposes for our trials. We've already looked at how our trials confirm our faith. We're going to continue a little bit more with this patience, this steadfastness. But for tonight, I want you to understand this. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are going to be either coming out of a trial, about to go into one, or you're in one right now. It's a part of how he works. Question is, are you going to count it joy or are you going to say, why me? I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.